Welcome, guys, to Behind the Shield. My name's James Gearing, and this is episode 38. And I am extremely excited to bring you a fellow firefighter, a UFC fighter, a politician, Chris Lytle. Back in the early 2000s, when I was going through fire school, uh, I was a big, big MMA fan, followed the top names, watched the Ultimate Fighter show religiously. Um, and Chris Lytle was absolutely one of my heroes. These uh, men at the time uh, were incredible, the, the levels of talent that they got to, the amount of training they did. But Chris did all this whilst working every third day as a full-time firefighter, losing sleep. So to me, that was even more incredible that he reached the pinnacle that he did in his profession. So if you talk about a man walking the walk, Chris is it. Um, ever since then, he's also got into politics. He ran for state Senate because he was sick and tired of uh, what the politicians were doing in his particular state. Um, he also has the Chris Lytle Foundation, where he's an advocate for uh, anti-bullying and other elements of kindness, basically. Um, and uh, this was another incredible interview. Uh, this man has so many different facets and uh, such humility. He comes out of uh, a sport where he had a pretty large spotlight on him and then goes and continues to serve his community, tries to serve his state, um, and then creates a foundation with, with his fame as well. Um, I have so many favorite interviews. There's not one that I don't love in one particular way. But being a full-time fireman, knowing what it's like, how exhausting it is to work the hours that we do, um, to imagine what it would be like to to do the other things that he's done in his career so far, um, it really does uh, lend a, a huge amount of admira admiration and respect towards Chris. So um, you guys are going to enjoy this very much. I apologize for the slight uh, reduction in quality and audio, but... Chris, at being so busy, he was actually on shift. We had our fingers crossed the whole time that he wasn't going to get banged out on a call. Um, so there's a slight lack of uh, uh, audio quality that we have on some of ours. But apart from that, I mean, it, it's a fantastic interview and it doesn't detract from it at all. Um, so before we get to the interview, again, please rate us on iTunes. Just go to there, click on the little five-star icon, say uh, you know what you loved about this interview. And then if you love this one, share this one. If you loved another one before, share it. And just, again, help me be part of this process of making this amazing information we have from these incredible minds span the globe, you know, multiple times over. So without further ado, I bring to you Chris Lytle. Enjoy. So uh, welcome, Chris, to the Behind the Shield podcast. Uh, where are we finding you today? I'm at the fire station, uh, fire station 41 in Indianapolis, Indiana. Fantastic. Um, now, I am very, very familiar with you. Uh, and I was very proud of uh, you know, having a fellow firefighter in the UFC, and that's where I, I know you from. Um, but I'd love to delve into your backstory a little bit and, and paint the picture for the people that aren't as familiar and then kind of walk down the path of, of the the life that you've led. So where were you born initially? I was born in Indianapolis, um, 1974, been living here most of my life. I uh, lived in Bloomington, Indiana for four years, been uh, traveled uh, many places throughout the world. I've been fortunate enough. I stayed in Japan for three months once. I went back for another month. 
uh, later on for training purposes. Um, stayed in Las Vegas for a few months for training, but most of my life I've spent right here. Okay, and whereabouts in Japan did you live? Um, I was in a place called uh, Yokohama once, and I was in a place called Sasebo once. Oh, okay. Yeah, Yokohama actually has a uh, a theme park there that does a Viking stunt show. I used to live in Japan in Osaka, and some of my friends had worked in Yokohama for a while. So I'm familiar with that area. Oh, you lived in Osaka? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's one of the big cities, big airport. I've, I've, uh, I think I flew into Osaka once. Yeah, yeah, it's a very, uh, very interesting place. Um, certainly uh, a fun fifteen months. I guess I, when I was in college, I was an athlete, so I kind of recreated my college drunken years in Osaka instead. So, <laughs> what, 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 what did you do in college? What sport? Um, in sports, I was. In, excuse me, in college, I was a taekwondo athlete. So oh, nice. yeah, so I was constantly uh, getting kicked in the face instead of drinking. So. When I became a stuntman and moved to Osaka for a year or so, that was uh, that was why I, I, you know, let loose a little bit. <laughs> nice. So, all right. So you're born in India. I know that's where you work now. Um, did you have firefighters in your family? None, zero. Matter of fact, I had police officers. Oh, really? Uh, my stepdad was a police officer, and my two stepbrothers are currently police officers. Okay, so you're a huge. I was, I was, I was a smart one. I oh, see. So you're a disappointment to the family then. No, I'm, I'm the I'm the guy they look up to now. <laughs> okay, um, and uh, so when when you were younger, were you an athlete then as well? Oh yeah, that was uh, my favorite thing. I liked pretty much all sports. I played football, baseball, basketball, wrestling, kind of all the all the main sports I had there. Okay, and now I know that uh, wrestling is one I kind of want to focus on a little bit. I have noticed a huge trend between some of the most amazing people I've had on the show and them wrestling in school and or college. So um, how long did you wrestle for? Um, I wrestled for, I guess, probably, I remember I started early middle school, uh, like sixth grade, all the way through high school. Then when I went to college, I was uh, talking about being on the, the, the D1, you know, Big Ten team, and I'd opted out of that. And this was on the club team, which was nice. We'd get to wrestle you know d2 varsity schools and this and that but we didn't we didn't have to train much like you talked about earlier a lot of that partying drinking beer that type of stuff kind of took over and uh i decided that was a lot funner than you know working out for a big 10 wrestling career so i opted just to have fun and kind of play around with it instead yeah yeah i think that's a good balance to have too you know you gotta you gotta live your life and uh, you know if you want to if you want to go both feet forward then uh, you know that's one thing but you know life's too short to to sacrifice everything um, so d- how did you feel the wrestling training that you went through shaped you for you know, the, the career that you chose and the, uh, the, the MMA career that you chose as well? Well, more for the MMA career, I'd say it was, it was the blueprint. It laid it out for me. It let me know that's why wrestlers are so successful in MMA is it's the exact same mindset you have to have. Not only what you think about and how you you know, approach training, but I mean, it has to kind of uh, dominate your life in many ways and you have to work harder than anybody else. And you, I mean, when you're in wrestling, when you're younger, you know, you have to worry about the weight cut and it's constantly on your mind 24 seven. That's different for most sports. Usually leave football or basketball practice and that's it. That's not it with wrestling. You're always worrying about the weight you're dealing with that. It's a constant struggle. Um, you know, but, but you will learn how to work really, really hard, um, to make yourself the best you can put out there on the mat or the cage or whatever. So that, that translates over with fighting. You know, 
when you go into fighting, you're going to have to use the exact same skill set, you know, the weight cut, the discipline, um, the really focus on the training, uh, working harder than anybody else there, the time commitment. I mean, all that stuff, I think, is it mirrors fighting with wrestling are very similar as compared to any other sport I've done, you know, and I've been a professional boxer as well. I think MMA is more like wrestling than, than it is boxing. Right. And would you, would you say that also that mindset helped you a lot in the fire service as well? Um, I think it definitely, definitely helped me get on because, you know, once you get that mindset of, you know, I have to do everything in my power to be successful, things become a lot easier. I think a lot of people, it's, it's hilarious to me. I'll talk to people and they're saying, man, I've been trying to get on the fire department. I haven't been able to do it. I'm like, well, what did you do? Like, well, I put in this application. I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah, you didn't do anything. I mean, did you, you know, try and get your fire science certification at Ivy Tech? No. Did you become an EMT? No. Did you try out for a paramedic? No. Did you volunteer in a department? No. I mean, you did nothing besides put an application. That's not trying to get on, you know. If you want to try something, you got about 10 different avenues you can try and actually make it happen. But putting in an application is nothing. You know, so, I mean, I, I just know when, when you do wrestling and you realize real quick, you know, I have to do a lot of different things to be good at this sport. MMA is the same way and getting what you want, whether that be a fireman, a doctor or a, an attorney. It's all the same. You have to put a lot into it to get that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of ownership in that. I think when we're applying for the fire service specifically, um, I always tell guys that, that ask me the same thing as that asked you. There's two things you can control in that process, and that's the physical test and the written test. You know, you can study for the written test till you've got that down pat, and then the physical, you can be the strongest, fittest athlete you can possibly be. And then, you know, obviously it's up to the people behind the desk in, in the interview panels and that kind of area. But up to that point, you should control your own destiny. Yeah, I mean, like you said, there's so much of this world we can't control. There is a few things we can. And if you're not willing to put forth everything you have to get to that, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, to me, that all becomes about desire. I love when I'll talk to people about losing weight or whatever. And they're like, I just, I can't lose weight. I'm trying. I'm like, well, you know, it's a straight, usually putting in, you know, expending more calories than you're taking in. Now, if you're, if that piece of chocolate cake right there, you just, you can't deal without it, then to me that, you know, that desire to eat that cake is more important than your desire to lose 10 pounds. So it's like whatever you desire the most you're going to do. Um, and, and people just don't seem to want to understand that or accept that. It's just, well, I just have trouble. No, it's just you're not using your willpower. And, and that willpower is all about desire to me. So if you have a huge desire to lose weight, you will lose weight. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Again, I think I've, I've mentioned this in many episodes in the past, but it's understanding your why. And obviously you, you have several whys, the, the incredible things you've achieved in your career so far, but it's not about the cake. It's about, you know, what do you want out of life? And that cake is merely a, a byproduct of your journey. Hey, exactly. You know I mean? And the good thing about wrestling, um, that helped get me kind of addicted to, you know, um, being a, a goal oriented person. So anyone, when I'm involved with MMA or whatever, Anything I do where you have this desire to, to, to accomplish a goal, you know, you put everything you can into that. And then when you're successful, you know, that's a very, very good feeling, you know, in like I don't mind certain levels of pain now because I know it's going towards a, a greater good, a greater a, a cause of me accomplishing something that I want to accomplish. So I don't mind that, you know, some people think it's crazy when you go in there and you're afterwards in the gym and you're hurting and your back hurts and your you know your arm hurts and people are like man why do you and your your, your face is bruised why do you do that because i know the payoff is going to be great for me you know i mean I'm, I'm addicted to that feeling of accomplishment and, and just even when you lose something just knowing you did everything you could to put yourself in that position 
you know, they're, they're, that's an addictive feeling as well. So I, I think, you know, goal-oriented people have that type of mentality, and uh, it translates over to all parts of their life. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think, even, like you said, even if you, you've lost, and I think you learn a lot more from a loss anyway, um, a lot of times, but the feeling of when you're done with a training session, knowing that you are a little bit tougher, a little bit stronger, a little bit more intelligent if you've been studying than you were the day before, and, and then therefore tougher than x amount of people on the planet and you know increasing your survivability and your ability to protect your family too absolutely absolutely all right well let's uh, let's delve into your your martial arts side a little bit more so you wrestled in in school when did you get into the other combat arts the boxing and the uh the striking sure. arts? i started doing that in uh right about january february of 1998 so um, I, what really happened was I, you know, being a wrestler, I, my stepdad, I told you was a police officer and where he was a police officer, they had some guys who were doing jujitsu. He told me, and I was like, what is that? I mean, I've heard of that. And he, uh, introduced me to him and I went and trained jujitsu. I remember I did it like once a week for about a month and really quick. I got pretty good. You know, I was a good wrestler and he, they kind of said, look, man, you're you're a little bit past us. I'm going to send you to this other gym where people train every day. And so I started training with those other people every day. I started doing really well there. And they're like, you need to start competing. And uh, I went and watched a fight they put on. And right then I was like, oh, I'm going to do this. And then uh, I started fighting in the Midwest and started having a lot of success. And I was able to meet up with a guy from Indianapolis named Jason Gatsi who um, ended up, he was fighting in Japan. and he had a manager who got him over there, and they I kept winning. They they finally got me to go over to Japan and fight in, in Pancrase and was able to start doing well over there, and then my kind of creators took off. Now, what was the draw? Because I, I know that happens a lot, with the, especially back in Day of Pride. What was it that took so many uh, American fighters all the way out to Japan? Well, to be honest with you, I mean, you know, I fought in the UFC in the year 2000, and I fought in Japan 1999. To about 2002 maybe i can't remember 2003 but um they to be honest with you i think the sport was bigger there um they treated you better there they treated it like a real sport um they had fans that fans appreciated the sport they understood the sport i mean here back in you know 2000 you know it, it was not the case very little respect was given to any of the fighters and you told most people you fought in a cage they looked at like like you just said i, I eat babies for breakfast like <laughs> what's wrong with you they look at what in a cage what, is there barbed wire? No, no. I mean, they just didn't understand, you know, and they, they thought you were the, you know, the um, Neanderthal. So that was not the case in Japan. They understood the art and, and the sport, um, and they respected the fighters. I remember I had, like, little baseball trading cards. People would come up and get autographs. That was not happening in the United States very much. Uh, and they actually paid a little bit better than when I went over to uh, the UFC initially. So there was a lot of positives to it. Um, and, and I love going to other cultures and seeing you know, how people do things in other parts of the world. To be honest with you, Japan's a good one. I mean, you know, they, they I think they're very respectful there. They have a, a different work ethic there. They have they have a thing that they call shame if you don't do something right. Like here, you know, if you're not successful at certain things, it's like, oh, that's all right, you know, I'll just, you know, take this or take that from somebody else who is working hard. That, I mean, that that's so shameful there. I mean, that suicide rate's very high because if someone disrespectful dishonors their family, they... They can't deal with the shame. We don't have that here. I mean, people be like, I don't care. I'm stealing from my family. They don't have that there as much, I don't think. So I, I really enjoyed their thought process and how they look at the world compared to many other places. Yeah, that, that losing face philosophy. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, like, I guess maybe they take it to an extreme, but I mean, we're just so the opposite here uh, in, in many ways. Yeah, maybe it's just a fact that me being on the fire department in, in Indianapolis and, and all I see is the people who, you know, could care less about what anybody thinks and are just out there to, to try and take money from the system. And, you know, they just have a totally different mentality. I, they could use a little bit of that Eastern philosophy. Yeah, yeah, and again, it's that ownership, isn't it? It's about uh, you know being the best version of yourself that you can be, and I think that they do have that. And I think you know, even used cars, for example, there's that thing about foreign cars. Well, the bottom line is that you that that uh, ownership shows in the quality of, for example, the Japanese cars. Um, you know, it's it's a better product. Let's let's be honest. In in a lot of examples. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, we we've. <laughs> We, my, we we buy, my wife had a Honda Pilot for about 10 years, and we just get another Honda. I mean, yeah, it's got over 200-something thousand miles on it. We're done. We're giving it to my daughter now, so we add another car. But I mean, it's just like, you know, I'm, I'm going to buy the best product. And here's the weird thing, you know, it used to be like, buy American. All these play, things are made in America. You know what I mean? So I got friends who work for Honda. I got friends who work for uh, Subaru. So it's like, hey, you know, you are supporting America by buying that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, well, let's talk about the uh, the fire service then. So how did you get into that? Because I know it parallels your UFC career, so I don't want to delve too far in before we we, we uh, attack your other career. Well, you know, it's funny. I remember when I was uh, in Indiana University, I remember one of my friends, uh, one summer, he was like, hey, let's be volunteer forest firefighters. There's a class you can take. And I was like, all right, I signed up for that. And I remember... You know, I, I was intrigued by it. It was fascinating to me. I had to go to like a three-day class and just sitting there through it. I really enjoyed it. I was like, man, this is pretty awesome. So I never really thought about doing it again. I graduated from school and I started, you know, working in, in my field. But right right about that time is when I started training in MMA. So once I started training in MMA, like my real profession kind of, I didn't have as much interest in that. I was like, I don't really want to be doing this. I was a personal trainer. I was doing a couple of other things. And at the gym I was working at, there's a couple of firemen there, and they were like, "Man, you need to try and get on the fire department. This would be perfect for you." So I thought, you know what, it would. And I started trying out for the fire department. I was continuing to fight MMA, and then I got hired on the fire department. And then, uh, but like I said, that was early. I got hired in 2001, and really, I would say most of my career didn't really take off in MMA till 2003, 2005. You know, a little bit afterwards. So most of my uh, MMA career, I was on the fire department. Okay. Now, obviously, you were a trainer, you were a fighter. So what was it like coming from a very uh, intense athletic background into your department specifically? Did they hold the bar high physically for their recruits? Oh, absolutely. That's one of the reasons I, I know they liked me because I knew that, you know, I was a hardworking, you know, physical guy who was going to come in there. And you know, all the people they tried to hire at this time were, were really – uh, physical fitness was an important thing. You know, that was one good thing about the department I was on. Um, they knew the importance of physical fitness and, and they didn't want to hire people who were going to come in and immediately, you know, gain 40 pounds and, and, and not work out. I mean, they wanted people who were going to work out. Everybody was very fit when I got hired, which was a good thing. Excellent. So, Have they maintained that standard? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they, they, they've tried to, I mean, it's hard when, I mean, most of the newer guys, yes, absolutely. Some of the older guys who were on before, you know, these administrations were in there. I mean, you're not changing their opinion. You know, they're, they're older. They don't sound, they're just like, I, I'm not working out. It's like, well, all right. I mean, they, they even give bonuses now for if you do work out so many days and you do so well on, on physical fitness tests. It's not much, but it's something. I mean, it's something just for working out every day, which is awesome. 
and, and some people still refuse to take it. So. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. It's, it's a good incentive, and again, it goes back to that Japanese philosophy of ownership. You know, if you if you're going to wear the badge on your chest, you need to be the best version of yourself because. Well, yeah. Here, here's the biggest problem to me. I think, especially in America, we're in this society right now where. You know, everybody has a built-in excuse for why something doesn't go their way. And I think that was one of the biggest things in my career when I actually took ownership. You know, now I look at everything. You know, people always say, well, this isn't your fault. This is your fault. Everything's your fault. I promise at some level, almost everything. There's a few exceptions, but things are your fault. And I mean, if you don't do certain – I mean, it, it, I, here's an example. I've had people who, who I've talked to about getting on the fire department. We talked about this, and, and I'm like, well – you know, did you make it past that round? They go, oh, man, no, this isn't happening. You know, this, you know, everybody in the fire department knows each other. He's a brother or a cousin. And he's like, man, I can't, you know, one guy told me, like, as a black man, I, I, you know, I just don't know anybody on there. I can't get hired. I was like, okay. Race and I talked to a white guy. I said, well, did you get past? No, nah, man, they're just giving all these jobs to women and minorities. So I'm like, okay, there's two <laughs> different guys. Two guys. They both didn't get hired because of the race. That's impossible. But my point is, everybody has a built-in excuse for why they didn't succeed now. It's not me. It's my gender. It's not me. It's my race. It's not me. It's this. I'm like, that's an excuse, man. Did, like I said, did you try it? Did you go to fire science one or two? You, no. That's an excuse people have. And, and it's like that with everything. There's no ownership for what people did wrong. I look back at the different fights I did things wrong. I did those wrong, man. Don't blame the referees. Don't blame the judges. Don't blame anybody but yourself. But we don't do that here. Everybody has an excuse. And here's the problem with that, though. When I figured out what things I did wrong, I can correct them. If you blame it on race, if you blame it on gender, if you blame it on somebody else, you can't do it. Then it's out of your hands. And why, why change what you're doing? You can't fix it if it's not your fault. And we have a society that believes nothing their fault, so they don't worry about fixing anything. And that's where our biggest problem is right there. Absolutely. Yeah, I remember uh, having a few fights in taekwondo and – it being left to the judges, and at the you know at, at the end of it, the guys would be like, "Oh man, you were robbed." And it's like, no, because if if I was that good, I would have knocked the guy out, and it would have been you know no question. But if you leave it in the referee's hands, then technically you've already lost, in my opinion. I, I agree. I mean, here's the problem, I mean, and that's the problem with the sport in a way is there's some guys are just tough, and some guys are so good you're not going to be able to take everybody out. And that's where I, I like the sport as far as, like, to me, there's nothing wrong with, you know, some losses. That's one thing where I think Japan had it right when you had, like, the pride days when it wasn't about necessarily winning every fight. It's about going out there and showing the warrior spirit and putting on entertaining fights. And that's why I love the, like, the yellow card system. Because if you go out there and you were putting on a boring fight to try and eke out a decision, they were going to give a yellow card and you were going to get fined money. And people were like, I don't want to lose my money, so I'm going to come out there and fight. And if I lose... I put on a great fight, they're going to want me back. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, and that's that's really what people are paying for. I mean, it, it's not the you know lay and pray that the, the people paying the money to watch are, are tuning in to see. It's obviously the, the slugfests. And yeah, I think the guys that, that leave it all in the cage and lose get a lot more respect than the guys that win sitting on a guy for five rounds. I couldn't agree more. I always tell people I'd rather lose a great fight than win a bad one. You know, it's just better... You feel better about yourself. Only thing that sucks, like with UFC, is the pay is so much different. It wasn't like that in Japan. You got to like, uh, at least when I was there, you got a flat rate, you know. But I mean, I don't know. Yeah, so you got the incentive to win. Well, yeah. Okay, so well, speaking of that, so that kind of ties in nicely. How how was your department with regards to your uh, MMA career? Did they support it? Did they um, allow you time off? 
man, I was really lucky. My department was fantastic about that. I remember, you know, and I, it, it, normally if you went off for a, a, a fight or whatever, I would just have to do trade time. So I'd have somebody work for me, you know, one day. And then when I got back, I'd have to work for them to make up that day. And that's usually how that works. But I remember one time when I went on the Ultimate Fighter 4 on the reality show, I was going to have to be off for six weeks. Uh, straight and i talked to the chief and he was like well chris you know this is a great opportunity you have to take it and he's like well i'll talk to the board and make sure we can get you off of this and he's like if they decide they you know you can't have like a, a leave then we will uh we'll just get a bunch of guys to work for you if we have to and he's like hell i'll even work a day for you if i need to and i was like wow what kind of department does that with the chief said so come work for me you know so yeah i was just i was hoping he would trade with me because i wanted to i want to trade with him back and be the chief one day but it didn't happen <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that, that's phenomenal so that was the ultimate feat excuse me ultimate fighter four is that correct yeah okay because i i have to say and i'm not just saying this because you're a fireman and we're having this conversation now but i think that that cast of that that particular uh series was probably the best cast that they've had on the ultimate fighter i mean din Thomas and pete cell and all the other guys matt sarah that, that you were with a we'd you know, any good ufc uh, fan had been watching you guys for several years prior to that um yeah but uh, you know the the fights were phenomenal. So uh, what was it like uh, during that whole episode? Man, you know, to to me, the thing that was different, you know, some of the guys were like, "Man, I don't have my cell phone. Man, I can't watch TV." But there was a couple of us. I don't know me and Matt Sarah particularly. Like, I don't know what you people are talking about. I could care less about my cell phone. I could care less about TV. I was like, "This is. I mean, this is a chance to get to live the dream." You know, I mean, my dream was to be the best fighter I could then. And, you know, I didn't get that option ever. I mean, I was always working at the firehouse my whole career. That was the only time throughout my MMA career where I took off and, and treated like I was a real fighter. For six weeks, I trained twice a day with some of the best guys in the world, had some great coaches, you know, got to go in there. I got to eat properly, eat whatever I need to for, for training and fighting. It was awesome to me. I mean, I, I, I loved that aspect of being there. Um, as opposed to I can't have my phone. You know, I mean, I, you know, my family and everybody knew I went there for a purpose to try and help, you know, our lives. And, and that was just something you, once again, you have to sacrifice. You don't just get things given to you and nothing's easy that's worthwhile. You know, so I, I was more than happy to be there, more than happy to try and, you know, treat myself like I was a true professional and work as hard as I could while I was there. I loved it. Right. Yeah. Now you're you're known for, and this might be completely different now, but I know you were known for training boxing in a boxing gym, training jujitsu in a jujitsu gym. Was it uh, a different experience having specific MMA coaches when you were on the show? Uh, I mean, it was just. I mean, it was weird having everything at one place. You know, I mean, it was a little different, but I mean, to me, training's training. You know, I I can listen to anybody. I feel like I'm very coachable. So um, to have everybody at the same place was just a, another bonus. You know, hey, I can do this all right here instead of having to go here or go there. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't think that was really difficult at all. I just thought it was great to have, you know, quality people around at all times you could train with. That was pretty awesome. And quality coaches around. You know, you, you, I have always had good coaches, but just going with different people, you get a different thought process and a different way of doing things. And that was I mean, I'll pick anybody's brain who has had some success at coaching because they obviously know something that that I don't probably. And just tweaking what I do a little bit might be a big difference. Yeah, now that can relate back to the fire department too. I mean, the the moment you think you know everything about the fire department is the day you need to retire. So you need to you know be open minded <laughs> enough. <laughs> 
Yeah, and, and you always see that some people who don't want to do anything different, don't want to train different. But I mean, you know, you're like you said, you're always about one one run away from something terrible happening. That kind of changes things. I remember when I first got hired, there's a big um, fire here that happened, you know, a few years before that, and uh, some of the people were killed, and they, you know, totally changed the way they they've done things here and you know other places throughout the country because of things like that. So. Once you're get, it, it, being too comfortable is a problem. You know, you don't want to be too comfortable here because not only is your situation changing, but I mean, the environment's changing. You know, the, the plastics are burning faster, melting more. You know, just different things are changing and, and it changes what happens with our job, too. So if you're not willing to change, you're going to you're going to you might get hurt or might get somebody killed. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I mean, even the cars, you know, the, the hybrids and the uh, electrical cars and. And every, oh, yeah. everything's changing and, and that's the thing is if you stop learning you're going to be so far behind the curve that you know either your life or someone else's life is going to be in danger if you uh if you haven't taken it seriously yeah um i just want to touch back on the uh the show correct me if i'm wrong was it wasn't it that show where scott smith and was it pete sell had that incredible fight where man that was that was about as Really one of the best endings to a fight I've ever seen still. I mean, I don't know if you can really top that one. It was pretty awesome. Yeah, I would say the same. That <laughs> that shot from lying on the floor was, uh, yeah, straight, well, straight out of know, Hollywood. <laughs> oh, Pete, yeah, it's a straight-up Rocky movie. When Pete hits him with a good body punch, and Scott kind of crumbles over. Like, oh, you can see the look in his face. Pain. And he, like, musters up enough energy to throw one right hand. At the same time, Pete's running forward to take him out, you know, to finish him off. And that right hand that, that Scott Smith, you know, throws lands right on Pete's chin, knocks him unconscious, you know, wins the fight, falls over and holds his side for about 30 seconds after he wins. Uh, it was, it was, you, you couldn't ask for anything better. Yeah, no, that was, uh, I agree 100%. I don't think I've seen a finish as good as that. I mean, there's been some phenomenal ones, but uh, yeah, as far as true grit and finding that, uh, that energy when you think you have none left, there's there's no better example than that fight, in my opinion. Nah, I mean it was the easiest easiest call to give that to knock out the night in the fight of the night. I mean they should have, they probably should have gave him the sub of the night too, even though he didn't submit it. <laughs> just, just throw just, everything just, at him. <laughs> just to say, hey, here you go. This is awesome. You know that was pretty awesome. Yeah. All right. So you have fought. You know, it's funny when I was looking at. Going back over your history, I mean, Matt Serra and Matt Hughes, and it seemed like everyone you fought was either a champion or or absolute top of the uh, the pile there. Um, so, but but I think my most impressive fight for you, and I feel bad admitting that I was totally rooting for you the whole time, but was your final fight against my fellow countryman Dan Hardy. Oh, <laughs> thank you. So, uh, so what what did that feel like uh, retiring on a win? Well, you know, it, it was it was. I couldn't ask for a better fight um, to go out on, but you know, it was nerve wracking going in there, you know, cause I, I, I knew I was retiring before that and I wrote a letter and I kind of gave it to him. I, I announced I was retiring before that fight. So you, you always want to go out on the win, but you don't know. I mean, and he was, you know, extremely tough fighter. Um, I, I really liked watching the fight and I, I really liked the way he fought, which is, you know, one of the reasons I was excited about the fight, I knew he wasn't coming to win a decision. He was going to try and take me out. And then uh, we got to stand and bang for almost three, four rounds, and he shot in with about a minute to go. And, you know, I was like, I didn't really expect this, but I love it. And uh, I was able to get a submission too, so it was very nice. Yeah, that was uh, a great ending. And, uh, yeah, I was very, very proud to be a fellow firefighter, i got to say. <laughs> 
So um, just scaling kind of parallel for a moment. So what about your boxing career? Obviously, that was uh, over a few years as well. What what started that and then what ultimately finished that one? Well, you know, it was funny because a lot of people think I was a, a boxer first and an MMA guy. That's not true. I was MMA. And um, I remember uh, I wanted to get better on my, on my stand-up, you know. So I started going to a boxing gym. And I was there for a little over a month. And um, the guy... The, my boxing coach, he's like, hey, this is a, a, a tough guy. He knew what I did, MMA and everything. And somebody called him, a guy from a top-ranked boxing. He's like, hey, I got a fight uh, in Wisconsin. I, I need a tough guy who you know, doesn't have much experience. And he's like, I got a tough guy without much experience. And that was me. So they, they, we drove up to Minnesota. or No, it was Wisconsin. Drove up to Wisconsin, and it was on like an ESPN2 card. And I fought a guy. He had like 50 amateur fights, and he was 2-0 as a pro. And he was a, an Indian, and he was I was fighting on his his, his reservation. So I was like, well, this kind of sucks. I'm being brought in to lose, I can tell. So uh, I went over there, and they, uh, you know, the guy said he saw me warming up, and he was like, Jesus, Keith, I thought you brought me a good fighter. This guy looks terrible. And, but they said that uh, I they said I beat him up the entire fight. They said I won the every round, but they ended up calling it a draw because I figured he was a you know, I was on his reservation, whatever. So I was, I, I didn't think much of it. I was like, well, whatever. I'm just doing this for my MMA practice. And, you know, the, the, the guy for top rank got a hold of my guys. I came in. I need to get those guys some more fights. He can, he can, he can hit. And he actually, he gave me my nickname lights out right there. So, oh, really? Uh, yeah, that's where I got it. So, uh, uh, then I started doing a lot of boxing and, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. Like it was really weird. I remember at one point I had, I was just doing whatever popped up. I remember I had, two boxing things and an MMA fight all within about a five-week period, which was stupid. I mean, I know I, that was my, the only boxing match I lost was the third one, like the third fight in three weeks, you know, because I, I was kind of of the opinion that I could just knock whoever out no matter what, you know. And then, um, you know, I, I watched my fight, the one that I lost. It's like every round my hands were dropping lower, my hands were dropping lower. And I just really wasn't prepared for the fight because I had been doing too much, you know. Then I that that was after that I kind of realized you know there's a thing you have to do we have to you have to peak at the end of each training camp you know you have to you can't just keep going and re recharge and recharge you know you have to you're supposed to you know have so now like and then you have like a six week camp and you're supposed to peak right at the end of that six week and then you take a little bit of time off and then you, you redo that you can't just keep fighting and fighting you know your body can't get up that much for everything and that's what happened that fight I just couldn't get up enough and you know I I, I didn't have any juice left at the end of the night, so lost that fight. But that was a learning experience. But like I said, it was great being able to, you know, I'll do an MMA fight this week. I'll do a boxing match next week. I liked it. I was being busy. I was learning all the time. It was it was a great time. But what really ended it for me was when I signed to be on the Ultimate Fighter Four. You know, I signed that UFC contract, and you know they said, well, when you do this, there's there, there's no boxing. And I remember I, I was like, well, I really like boxing. I'm doing pretty well in it right now. And then I looked at my boxing contract, and then I looked at my UFC contract, and I kind of said, "What's what, what's boxing?" I threw that contract away. <laughs> I'm getting paid more to do the UFC, so I, that's what into my boxing career. Right now, did you find this? This almost sounds like a silly question, but did you find that your pure boxing training helped your overall MMA? Oh, 100 percent. I mean, you know, I mean, just just being that comfort level of being on your feet, knowing you can knock people out. Um, but the difference is, I mean, you know, you got to understand there, there is definitely a difference in, in boxing and, and in MMA stand up. I think you'll find that out when Connor fights here. But I mean, 
there's just a d- couple different things, and I know for my style of boxing, to be honest with you, I think it is by far the worst style for MMA. I mean, there's a couple different styles. You got the guys who are good, you know, boxers who are going to stand and jab and move around. Those that that translates over to MMA pretty well. You got the guys who are looked for the one punch knockout, just a knockout artist that translates to MMA pretty well too. I was like the worst kind. I was a different kind. I was more of a pressure fighter. You get inside, you punch, you do dirty boxing. You know, you punch a guy to the arm, to the shoulder, you just overwhelm him with, you know, Julio Cesar Chavez style of boxing. That doesn't translate over to MMA very well because as soon as you get in tight, people clinch you up and try to take you down. So it's hard to, hard to really implement that style of boxing into MMA. But that was my style of boxing. I'm a firm believer. You don't pick your style of boxing. It chooses you. So, I mean, you know, I, I wasn't tall enough, long enough or fast enough to go out there and just out jab people and, it just, you know, I, I became the kind of fire out fighter that, you know, my body and everything naturally wanted it to be. Right. Now, you, you touched on, I literally have this, this word written on my, my paper in front of me, but you already said it. So, um, who, do you, uh, who do you pick for the Connor fight and why? Man, I, I'm going with Floyd. Uh, I, I, Floyd is my least favorite fighter probably in the world. <laughs> I don't like him in any way, but every time I've ever seen him fight, I've rooted against him. And he's never came near getting beat. I mean, he just—he's here's the thing, you know, the 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 styling is different. The gloves are bigger. I don't think people realize how different. I mean, people think these gloves are bigger and heavier. That's going to help Connor. No, it's not. He's not going to be able to hit Floyd. Nobody, nobody can hit the guy. I mean, Canelo couldn't hit him. Canelo's damn good, you know. Berto doesn't hit him. Pacquiao didn't. I mean, I really don't think Floyd. If Connor hits him five times the entire fight, I'll be impressed. Not talking little jabs or body shots, but if he actually hits him with five times, I don't think that's going to happen. So, if you can't hit a guy five times, you're probably not going to knock him out. You know, so I just don't see any way of Floyd really getting beat by Connor because I can't see Connor really do much. And I mean, Connor, I've seen him kind of gas out on some fights. I've never really seen Floyd. I don't know. I just don't see how he's going to get hit personally. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely uh, restricting himself within the boxing rules. So that's, uh, that's a pretty uh, huge challenge he's given himself. Well, I mean, to, I mean, to be honest, it's, it's the smartest, the best thing I've ever seen for any fighter. I'm so happy for this guy. He's going to make himself, you know, nine figures possibly, and he'll never have to do anything ever. I mean, how many, how many, how many fighters can ever say that in UFC? I mean, he's just... You know, he's put himself on a different level, and it hasn't taken him that long. He's going to just have a, uh, you know, hopefully a good life afterward. But, I mean, you just don't want to – my big problem with fighters is they continue to fight way past the time they should. Maybe part of it's financial. Uh, maybe part of it's just they, you know, they need that, you know, recognition that the greatest in the world. I don't know, but I don't think that's going to be Connor. I hope that he will be smart enough to be like, hey, I'm going to stick around as long as I want to, and I don't need to be doing this. and. I just don't like it when fighters continue to tarnish their legacy by continuing to fight and get knocked out and look bad. It's like, man, how was that guy? He used to be great, man. Not anymore. Yeah, yeah. I think Connor, if if anything, is going to be known as one of the greatest businessmen in MMA. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, so I want to kind of touch, you know, bring it back into the first responder side as well. So you were doing MMA, you were doing boxing, and you were on shift. How did how did you perceive the sleep deprivation of being up every third day affecting your uh, your overall fitness and, and obviously your career as well? Well, that was the thing for, I mean, 
for many, many years, it was just funny. I, I was, I felt like I was always tired. You know, people, we, if I'm sitting there for more than five minutes in a couch or something, I'd fall asleep. You know, people were always like, man, you can, you can just sleep, go to sleep just like that. I was like, I'm always tired. You know, I just, I'm constantly tired because I'm constantly, you know, not getting enough sleep sometimes or, or just, you know, working real hard. I mean, I never understood how people have like insomnia. How do you know, you know, how can you not sleep? <laughs> I could just sleep at any time if I wanted to. I could say I'm going to take a nap and fall asleep. You know, it's just, I didn't understand how, in, in any different way. But I mean, you know, the way, I, but part of that too was, I mean, I know a lot of people used to really, you know, I don't want to say be envious or jealous of my lifestyle. They're like, man, it looks like you, you, I mean, you have a great lifestyle. You do a lot of fun stuff. I'm like, no. I mean, all I do is train at the, you know, at the gym work at the firehouse or spend time with my kids. Like there is no other part of my life. It's actually quite boring. You know, it's like, you know, they're like, well, do you like to, to go golf? I, I don't ever golf. Like, do you go fishing or hunting? I've never been hunting in my life. Like, what else do you do? This is it. I mean, <laughs> that's my life is at the gym, you know, at the firehouse or up playing with my kids. And that was all I did for about 10 years, you know? So it's funny when you get down with fight, like you don't really have all these other interests or other things you're good at. It's weird. You know, it's like, well, now what, you know, it, it kind of throws you off. Yeah. Yeah. But did you have any, any period of time where you weren't on shift? Did you scale back from the fire department at all at any time? No, the only time I ever did was when I went on that reality show. I mean, you know, b- b- before that, you know, I would, I would train up till, you know, I remember, one of my, some of my boxing matches, you know, when they were in, you know, around the Midwest, I would be training, you know, I'd be at the, on ship the day before the fight, you know. See, that's but crazy. I mean, the, the sleep yeah. deprivation is, is, is so detrimental. And, you know, this is one of the, the big things I'm, I'm trying to get the, the point across is sleep deprivation and then the amount of hours that a, an average firefighter works as well. But for you to have the other careers that you have, um, uh, you know, the, the achievements that you have on their own are incredible, but to do that with every third day being on a 24-hour shift and not sleeping, I mean, I think it, it you'd add another 40% to your achievements, in all honesty. I appreciate that, and, I, and that's one thing, you know, I, I, and I remember I was talking with my wife, and she was just uh, always said she felt bad that I never really got a chance to, you know, fully you know, do what I, I felt like I could have done in the sport of MMA. And, and I, you know, but here's, here's the thing that you, you got to understand back when I was fighting, like in 2001 and 2002, you know, even up like 2005, I mean, you weren't making a lot of money doing MMA, you know? So, you know, the, the thought of ever like quitting my job at the fire department was never a realistic thing. I mean, there's another thing too. I like coming to work. I've never woke up once and said, I don't want to go to the firehouse. I mean, that's weird, isn't it? But it's never really happened to me where I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to go there today. That doesn't happen. So how are you going to quit a job that you like going to? You know, I just, I, I, I've never even thought ever about quitting this job and not coming to it right now. So that's always been a difficult aspect to, I mean, if I worked in a factory or something back then, I'm, I'm sure I quit and I just fight all the time. But I mean, I was lucky enough to have, two things I love to do and I said I'm going to give it everything I can at both of these right now as long as I can then when I'm done I'll be done and I'll uh, enjoy my life yeah well it was like I said it was a hell of an achievement uh, balancing those two together and I I couldn't agree more I mean even promotions I'm a fireman still I'm 13 years deep and I've I've moved a few departments but I'm still a fireman to me that's still the the best seat in in the whole fire department it's so hard even to leave that to promote Oh yeah, I mean to be honest with you, that that's and that's another problem 
you know, I don't, I haven't really had the desire to promote really because I mean, I, I got a lot going on on my outside schedule, uh, other things I do during the day, but, um, when I'm not here, but man, I, I just enjoy doing this aspect of it. I haven't got over that part yet. So maybe, you know, and I think a lot of people like to be, you know, do other promotions and whatnot because they, they uh, a sense of fulfillment and, and achievement in other areas. But I'm like, Dude, I'm getting that as other things. You know, I like what I'm doing here and I'm happy to put it. So I'm not really interested right now in trying to promote to different levels. So I'm just, just happy coming to work every day. Yeah. And your department obviously is, uh, is, is it your department specifically that was the inspiration for the, uh, the FDIC or, I don't know. It's here every year, though. Yeah. I know we have it every year. So, yeah, that's that's pretty awesome, too. I love we have people come over from all over the place. And uh, that that's pretty awesome just to hear other people and find out how things are in other areas. Yeah. Well, if I if I make it out there next year, maybe we'll try and uh, connect and do a face-to-face uh, follow-up. Absolutely. That'll be great, man. I'll take you out to all the, all the places around here. We'll have a good time. Fantastic. All right. It's done, then. Um, all right, so you're talking about the outsider. The next thing I want to touch on is you ran for state senate. So what was the, the the reason for that, and what were the things that you were trying to change? Well, the main reason was, you know, I cannot stand, to be honest with you, I can't stand politicians. I think they're all complete liars. Uh, they're not good people, I don't think, most of them. I think they're just very egotistical. They're full of themselves and they just say one thing and do another. And I really, the more I got to know them, the more I felt that they really didn't have the public's best interest at heart. Now, me being a firefighter like yourself, you see a lot more of things that I think the general public doesn't really understand. And I see problems with how, you know, the rules that let people do certain things. And when they're, they're, they might do things that they think are helping people, but I think they're really, there's unintended consequences that are making things worse for everybody. So when I see these things, I'm thinking, hey, I can, I understand this and I'd like to change it. I try and do whatever I can to make, you know, my environment a better place. But you can't do that just by talking to a politician. So I tried to become one of those guys. Uh, I felt like maybe I could explain a little bit better on the boards or at different places. Hey, these are the problems that I see, and these are the laws we could do to change it to make that a better situation. So I decided that I would like to uh, – I'm not the kind of person who just wants to, if I have a problem, just talk about it. I was like, if I don't try and do something about it, then I don't really deserve the right to complain about it. So I decided I was going to go and run for state senator to try and change the laws around my area. And then what were some of the uh, the issues that you wanted to change? Uh, I mean, there, there's a ton of different things. I mean, um, you know, I, I still feel that, you know, there's a lot of different things with uh, the businesses uh, that you need to try and work on to try and, you know, to be honest with you, the economy is always going to be a big issue. So when you're having businesses that are leaving, going to other states, going to other countries, you know, I want this to be a more friendly business environment because as the economy goes, everything goes. I don't care if, if your number one thing is morals and ethics. Um, when, you know, poverty comes in, that all goes out the window anyway, you know, so you really have to worry about making, uh, the, the place good economic situation for everybody. So I try to do a lot of different things that were going to be you know, very pro business. I want to be more of a loser pay system when like there's a lawsuit. I know people who own businesses where they will get sued all the time for, let's say $3,500 because they know that, the business has a retainer fee for fifty uh, for five thousand dollars. So if they, you know, just if they take the case, they they're going to pay more money than the lawsuits even worth to them. So they just settle all the time, and that costs 
people I know a lot of money, a lot of business, a lot of money. So I think that's not fair. I want, if you're going to file a frivolous lawsuit, I want you to have to pay. That's going to keep the business from having to shell all this money, have all these attorneys. Um, problem is, uh, all the people in the state government are about 90% of them are attorneys. You know, they don't like these kind of laws, you know, so they don't want things like that where it's common sense where you, I mean, I want, you know, if you have a legitimate problem, you know, people are going to take the case and, and, and you're going to win. I want to protect the customers, but at the same time, I don't want people taking advantage uh, of business and, you know, over-regulation in certain aspects, I believe, or um, just a problem that, that kind of hurt business. And I know other business people say they, they have, you know, four guys who are just there for compliance of, you know, FDA, different, different you know, things that, that are just a complete waste of them and they can't hire more people to help grow their business because they're spending all their money on different regulatory restrictions. And I, I, I just don't enjoy that. I think that's a, a foolish way to waste our money. It does create another job for a politician. It creates another job for a government employee. But I mean, you know, I'm paying, you know, that's another thing that got me. I, I, I'd look at these taxes I was paying. I'd get a big check from the USC and I'd notice, you know, 30 something percent would go to the IRS. And then I'm seeing how they're wasting money blatantly. I remember uh, the IRS had a, um, a big party and they, uh, they brought this guy in and paid him $500,000 to do some mural. And these guys were staying in, staying in uh, 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 hotels that cost $3,000 a night. I said, you have an IRS agent? Staying in a room cost three thousand dollars a night. That was my tag. This is unbelievable. I don't want people spending money like this. I mean, you can stay in a Best Western for a hundred dollars a night. They're staying at three thousand dollars one night. That's unacceptable to me. But nobody's holding these people accountable because they're like, well, you know, I, I, I just can't deal with the, the way government does stuff. They want everybody else to pay for all their. They're like kings and queens, really. Like if you took it, the American government. I think they live like kings. Yeah, I, I would say. Um Oh, I concur completely. One of the things I think coming from outside the country and, and coming in and obviously having a fresh pair of eyes, we talk about making you know, this country great again. Frivolous lawsuits are by far a cancer to, to, to this nation. And, and the legitimate lawsuits I'm all for. You know, if you get the surgery and they sew, you know, half their operating equipment inside your abdomen, clearly that needs to be uh, mitigated. But, you know, you spill coffee on yourself and now you're crying that you got burned, then that's ridiculous. Yeah. But, you know, that that's even one that won. You know, that that actually won. So, I mean, my point would never be – I think how it would work is you would find, you know, a law firm. If you have a legitimate case, I think they're going to say, hey, we will do this for you, but we get a, you know, we're going to get 40% if you win or whatever. I mean, they're not going to not take cases they think are actually going to win they're not going to take stupid ones now, you know, because before they would they would just take them, and if they, people would sue, and, and 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 they know that the defend whoever's trying to defend themselves, if they have to pay more than you know more than the lawsuit's worth, they're not going to do it. They'll just say, well, screw it, settle. If I have to pay five thousand dollars instead of ten thousand is going to cost to fight it, I'll just pay the five thousand. And I, that, you got a lot of people. I know people realize how many I'd like to say scammers or how many people out there who are. You know, just taking advantage of loopholes and things that they know um, they can they can get money off of it. That 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 bothers me. Yeah, yeah, and we see it obviously in our profession. Uh, I know every time you have a, like a two mile an hour vehicle collision, the average person will be fine. I had one to, just this shift. I guess got off shift this morning. The lady got hit really hard, and she was like, "I'm fine. I'm good." Um, but then you get these ones at my neck, my back, and then it's on the radio too here. You know, there's, there's a certain commercial where after you call 911, you call 411, 
and you know yeah call them if you, if someone has really affected your life but if you got hit two miles an hour and and just slightly moved the dust on 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 the back of your car you're probably not having a career ending uh, injury when you when you look and there's absolutely no damage to the vehicle none and there's you know they're throwing this you know big big fit of i need you know uh I need this. I need that. I need to see collars. Like, man, you, you are not hurt. Are you kidding me? This is for real. But yeah, I mean, they're just, I guarantee they're just looking for that loss. I'm like, look, it, you don't have to go by ambush. You can still sue. I told you, you can still sue them even if you don't go by ambush. Let's say it hurt tomorrow. I mean, okay. I mean, it, yeah, that stuff bothers me. But I mean, there's just a lot of things to me. Um, you know, as the economy goes, I think society goes, look at all the places. I, I know here in, in Indianapolis, there's, areas that used to be very nice and as you know jobs go away you know plants close down um that area gets really bad economically and then everything goes bad you know you got a lot more crime there uh drug problems so my point is as the economy goes i think you know morality everything that area is going to go downhill and i always want to avoid that i think there could be better living situations by you know, I sympathize, I empathize with the people who I see here because there's nothing worse to me than seeing a person, a little kid. And I think you're such a cute, nice little kid and you have very little chance to be successful. That's where you're going to have a very tough life. I guarantee it. Just looking at your environment that you live in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've had exactly the same, you know, situation where there's an Escalade in the front and, you know, the poor kids are running around with no shoes and, and filthy clothes. And, and you know, when, when people are judgmental towards certain members of society, it's like until you've seen a two-year-old in that, in that situation where the parents are slinging dope or whatever it is that they're doing, you imagine what it would be like growing up as that child and then trying to function as, as a, as a positive member of society when all your role models have been teaching you the wrong way. Well, yeah, that's the thing, you know, I, I've looked at, you know, I, I've done certain things right now. We try and help out with the gym, um, indie boxing and grappling where I'm at now. And, and it's free to all kids and it's not in a nice area. And we put it there for a reason because we want those kids who have, you know, no chance, you know, who have nobody to look up to. If you're like in those areas and you're looking up to somebody, I guarantee you the person in that neighborhood who's looked up to is probably a gang member or a drug dealer, one of the two. Those are the people who get the respect. Those Because if you're a successful individual, you start a business, you don't stay in those neighborhoods. You move out. So if you're in this bad neighborhood and you are a success, somebody who's looked up to, you're doing something illegal. So as a kid, you don't really know why you, I mean, you don't consciously think you want to be like this, but... You know, it, that rubs off on you. I mean, you as you idolize somebody, you kind of want to be more like them. And subconsciously, you do become more like them. So what do we, that's who we're creating. We're creating people who are wanting to be criminals in a way. And that's looked up to in our society. So we wanted to put a gym where who's going to be looked up to? A UFC fighter, you know? So people are going to go to the gym. They're going to be like, I want to be this guy. So they're going to try and become more like that. How do you do that? You work hard. So, so if they see they can work hard... Maybe that'll rub off on them, and maybe they will want to work hard in life. That that's kind of the thought behind the gym is learning to work hard, not learning how to you know steal things or or, or sell drugs or whatever. So, uh, but yeah, you see that day in and day out. And you think, I mean, how can you change this? How, what can you do for it? Only thing I've really noticed what we're trying to do is trying to put other. If you're not willing to put in the time and actually, you know, mentor people without them even knowing they're being mentored, that that's kind of the goal right there. Yeah, yeah, I've really enjoyed working in those neighborhoods for pretty much the first 10 years of my career. And obviously, they're the neighborhoods that a lot of 
people that want to getting away from in, in, in certain departments. But to me, I used to tell people, you might be the only person that shows kindness to some of these people, whether they're, you know, uh, slinging dope or, you know, whatever it is that they're doing that may not be contributing positively to society if they're addicts your kindness may just may be the one thing that that turns them around and certainly like you said the the influential kids if they see a firefighter or a policeman that's compassionate it it may be something that pushes them towards realizing that the negative role models that they've been looking up to maybe aren't the best way of, of moving forward in life yeah i mean that's 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 the that's the worst part and the toughest part is just seeing this and knowing how little you can do to change it. And then, like I said earlier, knowing that I feel like in certain ways some of our laws and rules are being not only – to, to me, the politicians are just going to say whatever they have to do to buy votes. They don't care how it affects the people, really. They're trying to buy their votes. So when they give them this and they give them that, I'm like, you're doing the work. You're not. You're doing a disservice to these people. You're not helping them. You're, you're hurting them. Why do we keep doing this? Come down here for – a week and work with me and tell me what you're doing. Your programs are helping them. You know they're not. You know, maybe you don't know that because you're not here. I'm here and I'm seeing it and I want this to stop and you're continuing because it sounds good. It gives a good sound bite and everybody's going to vote for you because they think you're trying to help people. You're not. You know what you're trying to do is best for you. Yeah. Well, well uh, expanding on that. So one thing I was uh, impressed is the wrong word, but uh, I admire you for, I guess is a better way of saying it, is you, you know, you're a fireman. You've had this very, very successful MMA career. You're, you're a household name. Um, and then I discovered that after retiring from there, you created your foundation, which is obviously giving back to the community rather than, than going, you know, some, uh, some other way. So can you tell me about what your foundation is and, and how you started it? Sure. Um, I have something called the Chris Lotto Foundation. And what that is, is we go out and we speak to, majority most of the time uh, kids about uh i call it an anti-bully thing but to be honest with you it's more about standing up for other kids who are having trouble standing up for themselves um how it really came to be was i was going and i was giving speeches to many people about different things work ethic and you know hard, time management different things and um, i came to realize you know i have four kids my youngest son jake he has autism so I think it's always kind of made me hypersensitive or hyper aware of, you know, people who are being, you know, picked on, mistreated, made fun of, because I've always worried about him. He's been very lucky. I think most people around where we live know him, know the family, and they've treated him very well. But I just, that doesn't happen all the time. They don't always have, you know, that support system. So um, I've looked into kids who are depressed, you know, they commit suicide, they attempt suicide. And I've the father i can't think of anything more devastating in the world than if your kid you know hurt themselves or killed themselves because of how people were treating them i mean you'd never be the same ever so i, I just you know anything like that you want to try and help and do things like i said i can't just sit by if i feel like i have the ability to help at all i'm gonna try and do it so i sat down i wrote this book out um me and uh one of my friends helped me run for state senate kind of got it published uh, started this foundation we go out we try and read the book we try and uh, get the book out to as many schools as we can and we try and just um, tell people the impact uh, of or really the benefits of you know being a hero to somebody how good it feels when people look up to you and i always talk about when i was a little kid i was very little smaller than most of the kids and i hung out with older people so um all the people who stood up for me back when I was a kid, I, I still look up to them this day. You know, it's probably been 30 something years and I still look up to these guys who stood up for me, you know, 
and, and you know, when I was a kid, I idolized these guys, you know, and just trying to tell people how good it feels to have people look up to you. And you can't have that feeling if you will stand up for some people, you know, and I always talk about different examples, different examples. But, you know, it's a great feeling to be looked up to. And, you know, you can be that person, you know, don't, uh, you know, the bullies that have their own issues or nobody's happy and wants other people to not be happy that they they're they're they don't feel comfortable in their own skin. So they try and make somebody else feel bad. Don't be that guy. You know, be the person who people look up to. So um, that's what the Chris Lido Foundation started out as. That's what we do a lot of. We've all, we've also done some where we do you know, self-defense classes for uh, female victims. And just we, we, we kind of go in a lot of different directions. Anything that's about helping somebody out um, where, where people are being picked on or mistreated is kind of what we're trying to do. Okay, what was the book called? Uh, the, the book is called Lights Out on Bullying. Brilliant. Okay, now have you uh, heard of Mark Miro? Mark Miro. Yes. I don't think so. Okay, so he I actually interviewed him uh, quite a while ago now. He's a local uh, guy. He was a WWE wrestler, and he actually tours schools doing talks about the same things. That's something that you guys should probably really? uh, connect with. Yeah, he's a phenomenal phenomenal guy he has a very inspiring story kind of of how he spiraled down into uh, you know addiction and alcoholism and and just egotism really and then he tells this heartbreaking story about how he never really got to tell tell his mother how much he loved her and she passed away Uh, there's actually a a video on youtube but now he he uses that as a kind of uh, anchor point for his whole his whole talk but he's the same thing he's anti-bullying he points out how you know a lot of bullies are fighting their own battles, and that's how they're dealing with it. Um, so totally aligns with what you just said. Wow! I yeah, I'm not even was this was that was that his wrestling name as well, or do you know? Um, oh God, I forget his wrestling name. I'll look it up in a second. But um, the, I'm, I was gonna say, I'm not a wrestling guy, like a pro wrestling <laughs> guy, so I would probably wouldn't know it anyway. Yeah, it's, um, but the uh, his organization is called Choice of Champions, and if you look at when when we you know publish this, if you look at the the podcast, if you go back, um, I'll give you the the episode number in a moment. But um, he's on there, and and I'll give you his story. Um, all right, so yeah, th- touching on what you're saying about the bullying, that's something that I think that is a real epidemic at the moment, and I'm sure there are a lot of people that do step in. But it's so sad how now in the social media world we see so many videos of people being bullied instead of that person having the courage to put the cell phone down and actually stop it instead of being a, a I'll use the word, a little bitch and filming it instead. Yeah, I mean, you know, people, yeah, I, and, and I give examples of, of stuff where, you know, uh, you know a, a situation where I didn't do uh, the right thing. And because, you know, people think, it, you know, bullying ends when they're kids, not necessarily. So I, I, I think of an example where, you know, I didn't do the, the right thing and how, you know, ever since then that's ate away at me. You know, I was like, man, that's probably 11 years ago. And I'm embarrassed for myself for, for not doing anything about that because, you know, I'm supposed to be this big, tough fighter, not afraid of anything. But, you know, I just didn't want I was the one having the problem. So it's just easy sometimes not to. So I, I just tell people, wow, you know, 11 years later, I'm still you know, beating myself up for being in that situation. So, um, and not doing anything, but ever since then, when I have been in that situation, oh, I make sure because I look, I'd rather be made fun of for the next week. I'll deal with that. That doesn't bother me. What bothers me is for the 11 years later where I'm, I'm embarrassed for myself, you know? So, 
and hope uh, I tell people I hope if you see something you don't do anything you know I hope you feel like I, I hope you're embarrassed I hope you're ashamed of yourself and I hope that you say I don't care I'm never letting that happen again I, I'm not gonna sit back and not let it be because that's easy at the time I keep trying to tell people you know being having courage isn't about not being afraid it's about being afraid and still doing the right thing no matter what that's what courage is if you're not afraid you're either not smart or something I mean, you're gonna be afraid there's nothing wrong with that but not doing anything about it that should make you feel bad. I want you to feel bad, and I wanted to make you feel so bad that you say, I don't care. I'm not I'm not having this feeling ever again. Amen to that. Yeah, and then I want to reiterate as well. It doesn't mean that you're jumping in because not, you know we're not all MMA fighters that, that were in the no. UFC. So then that means just going to tell someone, whether it's a teacher or well, calling the police, or but, but yeah, doing something I, positive. And I've even talked to people say, look, man, I don't even care if afterwards, you, like let's say somebody's getting their chair pulled out from everybody's laughing. I mean, I don't care if afterwards you come and say, hey, man, sorry that happened. I'm just talking. You know, the worst thing about when people are being like, the, the, the thing that makes people suicidal and sad is they feel like everybody's against them. They don't have any friend. Nothing can help them out. The, the loneliness, the isolation. And just going up and talking to people make them feel better sometimes. So, hey, man, you know, if there's anything I can do to help. You know I mean? I'm afraid of that guy too, but, you know, I, I don't know. Just, uh, just, just, just kind of going and trying to, to, to be – empathetic to the person can make the world difference in their eyes sometimes yeah and also i guess you know the, the more people that that align with that person then it's strength in numbers and and you're going to discourage yep. the bullying from do, doing something else uh, i've told people that too man if you're having problems you know say hey, man can you walk with me here we're gonna go to this class if you always give me a prop you know and, and yeah that, that's another solution people ask me what things they can do i mean there's a ton of different things you know i obviously talk to somebody but don't don't just sit there and, and dwell on that and, and internalize it the whole time and not do it or say anything about it because that's when, you know, over time, that's when a problem arises. Yeah. All right. So I looked at um, uh, Mark's name. His wrestling name was Johnny B. Bad. He was episode 13 of this podcast. Um, but uh, I will actually, after we're done, I will send you his information too and see if we can get you guys connected because I think uh, you would probably have a, a very, very great conversation. Um, all right, Chris, well, you give us an hour of your time, and I don't know if people listening are aware, but you're actually on shift at the moment, so it's, uh, you know, we're praying to the call gods that we're able to get this interview done. Um, yeah, I got, we got lucky, man. We've already had about four runs a day, so... Uh, <laughs> brilliant. I thought we'd probably catch one, but we didn't. That's a good thing. Yeah, it is. I just came off a of 48 this morning, and... Uh, Ooh, yeah, 48? We, do, you, yeah. do you normally do 48, or are you doing a double? No, I did a double. I, I, I had a couple of shifts that I owe people from them helping yep. me out in a pinch, so... Uh, I've done four of them in three weeks, and uh, yeah. oh my god, that's a long time. That's a lot. Geez. Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> now, one of my one of my good buddies, uh, he lives out in Colorado, and where he works, I think in Farmington, New Mexico. Now, um, everybody kind of travels the distance, so they work forty eight on, ninety six off. I said, that's crazy. You work two days straight, and then you're off for four days. So it's a little different than what we do here. We're twenty four on, forty eight off. I remember thinking four days, two days on is a long time, but. Yeah. Now, did you have Kelly days at your department? We actually do. Okay. Actually do. Good. Good. Yeah, yeah, we do as well. Because my my one of my pushes for this not not this project specifically, but one of my personal pushes within the fire service is addressing you know the sleep deprivation and, and the illness that comes from that. And I kind of took a step back and realized that when you ask a firefighter about um, you know the the shift patterns that the return is always oh maybe we should do two twelve maybe we should do a fourteen and a ten. Instead of addressing the fact that our work week is way higher than the average, you know, office person, grocery clerk, whatever it is. So, um, you know, I think that ultimately, if you're talking about changing the world, changing our uh, profession, 
that going towards 2472s and getting our average work week down to about 42 hours a week is, is the future of health in first responders? Well, I do know one of my friends who's a chiropractor, but he has like a hormone replacement therapy in, in, in his place as well. And he says one thing, when firemen come a lot, they're very low on testosterone due to the fact they're not getting enough sleep. So, um, yeah, I know what you're saying is uh, it's not just a lack of sleep problem. It has other effects on the body as well. I mean, there, there's a lot of problems. And, def- you know, people don't understand how important sleep is. And when you're not getting that properly, you, your whole body can be thrown out of whack. Yeah, exactly. And I think, sadly, it even translates to a lot of the heart disease and cancer that we see taking a lot of lives in our profession, too. Absolutely. So, yeah, anything we can do to... You know, that's the beauty of it. Like you say, that we're constantly learning and coming up with things. I remember, you know, when I when I first got hired on, you know, there's there's still a lot of people who were on before they used to wear masks a lot. You know, I mean, that's unheard of nowadays because all the cancers that people get. But I mean, that used to be the thing back in the day. Like if you wore, you know, a mask, you were looked down upon. And that's just unbelievable to me. So I'm glad to see, you know, things are slowly but surely getting in the right direction. It'll be there eventually, but it just takes time. Yeah, yeah. I think we've come a long, long way in the protective gear. And I think now the area that we really need to be more aggressive on is, is the sleep and, you know, the shift, uh, the, the shift patterns to allow us from, to recover from, you know, what's pretty brutal 24 hour shift, especially if you're up all night and give them the time to actually recoup and get that sleep so that when they go back to work, they're focused and not sleep deprived when they're working on your child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I know that is one good thing, at least I know in my department where, you know, you can 48 hours the most you can work in a row. After that, you have to have at least a 12 hour break because it used to be that way. I remember a guy worked like five shifts in a row once, but you're not allowed to do that anymore. 48 and then you have to have 12 hours off. Yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, a very sensible practice. Okay, well, I'm going to wrap up with a few short questions so I can uh, let you get on with your shift. Um so I always ask people first, what's a, uh, is there a book that you recommend? doesn't have to be about what we've been talking about, but any, any book that you like to tell people about, apart from your own, what we've discussed already? Oh, geez, man. Uh, okay. I got a, I got a book that I, I just read not long ago and I absolutely loved it. It's, uh, you know, it's once again, I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to everything, but this is an economics book again, but it's not, a, it's not like a boring, dry economics book. I've never read one of those. This is called How an Economy Grows and Why It Crashes by a guy named Peter Schiff. And uh, I thought that was a great read. It makes it very easy. It's like a parable like about fish and everything. And it's a pretty funny story, but it uh, I think it's a very good book that kind of explains you know, economics and how we're doing things wrong. Especially you got the Federal Reserve creating a lot of different money, why they want inflation and how inflation, how devastating it is and how stupid it is. Um, yeah, I really like that book, How Economy Grows and Why It Crashes. Check that one out. Okay, brilliant. And then uh, a movie and or a documentary. Oh, man. Uh, let me think, man. I like it. I mean, we watch movies here all the time. That's one of our one of our things. Uh, let me think here. Uh, what movie did I watch recently? Uh, like, does it, uh, any, any kind of theme? Type of this, or just any, like no, a newer movie, older movie? Anything, anything at all. Jeez, let me think about that. Um, as far as a documentary, I know we watched something here not too long ago, and they ended up making a movie about it, but this was called uh, Man on a Wire. Oh, yeah, uh, great film. Did you see that, that, that documentary? Yeah. 
The that guy that did the tightrope walking. Yeah, I had no idea. I mean, what? A, that was a crazy story, man. I really like that as a documentary because we we were at the firehouse once and we watched it just kind of flip through. We're like, man, how did he even get that accomplished? It was pretty amazing. So yeah, yeah, that's that's a great mental toughness uh, documentary, in my opinion. <laughs> oh, I, absolutely! I really enjoyed that. So I can say, as far as documentaries, that was the one I've watched in the last uh, few months that I really enjoyed. Okay, and then uh, obviously you you train, and that's definitely one of my outlets. Um, but do you have anything else you do to decompress after a shift? Oh man, no. To be honest with you, uh, training is definitely the thing I do. It's funny you can always like, you know, my my wife has told me before when you know if I don't train for very long, I become kind of very short with people and kind of in a bad mood, and she'll be like. You need to go to the gym, you know. <laughs> it's funny. You need to go to the gym, you know, because you can tell when I'm in a bad mood. It's funny, like when I, if I do that, you know, I'm kind of in a bad mood. I'm, I'm short with people or whatever. And then, you know, when I leave the gym, I could come home, and if I saw my house on fire, I'd be like, "That's all right, you know. It's, it's just a house. We'll get new stuff." But before, you know, just my mindset totally changed. I'm totally relaxed with everything. You know, I've, I've actually gotten into recently more actually trying to do a little bit of a meditation where I will uh, just go each morning and try and you know actually go in the closet turn off all the lights and try and just you know uh, meditate kind of for 15 minutes and try and just clear my head clear my thoughts and i think that kind of has another good effect on me yeah yeah i'm the same i notice uh my road rage and i say that it's not like i'm i'm getting out my car and dragging people out but my intolerance for selfish driving is a lot better after a couple hours of uh training oh yeah yeah (laughs) yep absolutely now, uh, just while I'm looking at my uh, my list of episodes here, episode six of the show was uh, a Navy SEAL who became a doctor and is now the Navy SEAL's doctor, um, and his name is Doc Parsley, Kirk Parsley. His episode is all about sleep deprivation, so if you want to delve into that, and that's totally related to to the, Man, uh, the short short temperedness as well. That's uh, that's what I find. You know, if, if I haven't slept after a few shifts, then my uh, my nerves are pretty sharp. I'll have to check that one out, episode six. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, all right. And then uh, the last question. So where can people find you and the foundation online? Uh, you can go to uh, chrislidofoundation.org or you could go to just Chris Lido on Facebook. Uh, hit me up. I always answer people when they ask me questions. So anything you could do there or uh, on Twitter, I'm Chris Lido, L-L-L-O. I'm sorry. Brilliant. All right. Well, Chris, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And thank you to the call gods for not toning you guys out for the last hour and 15 minutes. Um, and uh, it's been a, a real pleasure to talk to you. And I really, really appreciate you taking, excuse me, taking time out to uh, reach out to the community. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me on. Let me know if you're going to make it here next year.